0: you to please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Tonight, as we, uh, with God's help, as we finish out chapter 13 of the Gospel of Luke, you may remember that last week we took a small passage and we made it even smaller. Uh, today we're looking at the, uh, the second half of that today. Luke chapter 13, and we'll be reading together verses 34 and 35. And uh, if you were with us last week, you remember that I told you there were two things happening in this larger passage. That first, um, Jesus uh, was foretelling uh, his, uh, his sacrifice. Uh, he was extending his uh, sovereignty in a sense that he is not perturbed by those that would, uh, would want to be in his way because he is going up to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, we saw that last week, and I told you to be on the lookout Uh, This week, for Christ's compassion for sinners, even those who reject him. And that is what we'll see in verses 34 and 35. So that we can get the context as we look at this together. I am going to begin our reading tonight in verse 31, and we'll go through verse 35. But we are only looking uh, tonight at the the last two verses of this. You can find that, if you haven't already, on page 873 uh, of most ESVs. And uh, before we read God's Word together, I'd ask that you would join me as we come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray and seek his blessing. Gracious and righteous Lord, we thank you for your word which you have given, and we pray that you would make us those who hear it. We pray that you would be merciful to us and and give us your grace to receive your word in truth, to know the day of our visitation, to see the one whom you have sent in the name of the Lord, to draw sinners to himself, to reconcile us to God. Help us, O Lord to rejoice in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, and to believe on his name. We pray in, in his name. Amen. I'd ask you to stand together with me as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Hear now God's Word as we find it, as we read it in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 31 and reading to verse 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here. For Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In our text, beginning in verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together tonight. You may be seated. Well, in his, uh, his short book about sharing the gospel, Rico Tice tells the story about a beach day vac- vacation uh, with a friend of his that he was visiting in Australia And it was just about the time that Rico was beginning to head to the shore and and was going to take a swim when his friend pointed out all the signs on the beach warning potential swimmers to the danger of shark-infested waters. And uh, Rico writes, With the confidence of an Englishman abroad, I said, Don't be ridiculous. I'll be fine. And he said, Listen, mate. 200 Australians have died in shark attacks and you've got to decide whether those signs are there to save you or to spoil your fun. Uh, You can't get very far in the Bible without running into warning signs. All over God's word, he warns us against sins of the flesh and sins of the heart and sins of our youth and sins of our old age. He warns us against the danger of leaning Uh, on our own understanding or thinking that we can handle temptations on our own strength. God in his word warns us against the enticement of sinners and the snares of the devil and the coming storm of God's wrath upon the unrighteous, but perhaps more than anything else, God's word warns us not to ignore the warnings in God's word. And at some point, if you spend enough time in the Bible to quote Rico Tice's Australian friend, you've got to decide whether those warnings are there to spoil your fun or to save you. And the same is true when it comes to interactions with Jesus. We see Jesus all over the Gospels warning people not to neglect the salvation offered in his death and in his resurrection. But Jesus was a prophet, and it happened uh, the same way for Jesus that had happened to many other prophets, that Jesus spoke to people whose hearts were hard and whose ears were deaf and would not receive the message that he was teaching and telling them, the warnings that he was speaking. And today, countless multitudes hear the gospel with the same stiffened skepticism as those who heard him when he was walking the earth. They refuse to turn. They refuse to repent. They refuse to come to Jesus in order that they might have life. And to those who refuse to heed his gospel call, Jesus responds with the compassion of continued warning. Jesus continues speaking to those who reject his gospel call. And he doesn't do it to spoil their fun, but so that through his warning, some might be saved. And to those who reject his call, Jesus continues speaking. He speaks out of compassion, and he speaks out of a care and a concern for sinners. And I think if we have come to trust in Jesus, his compassion is going to become our compassion. And his message and his warnings are going to become our message and our warnings to the world around us. And so it's important that we see here in this very short passage how the compassion of Christ is displayed in these verses. I think we see it in in two important ways. First, we see that Jesus mourns over salvation rejected. Take a look again at verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not one of the details we often miss in the biblical text, one of the details that Luke doesn't put in here, is what tone of voice Jesus might have used as he spoke these words. And depending on how you hear what Jesus is saying, you might hear a few different things. Maybe you hear a little bit of indignation in Jesus' voice. Maybe he's exasperated. Oh, the city that kills the prophets. Here we go again. Maybe that's what you hear in Jesus' words. Or maybe, maybe there is an element of, I told you so. I would have gathered your children. You would not. It can be hard to tell from the words what Jesus might have had in his heart. Remember, though, that Jesus is a man. He has the full range of of human emotion. He is perfectly capable of of being uh, grieved over sin or being angry at it. And the question for us, I think, is that as Jesus exposes this sin, of rejecting his salvation, does he rage against it or does he weep over it? Does he fume or does he mourn? Now consider for a minute that, that Jesus is dealing with more than just a single unintentional transgression. You know if you turn through the pages of the Old Testament, there's a distinction that's maintained between sins that are committed in ignorance and sins that are committed with a high hand, that is almost with a fist, shaking against the heavens, against the God who has given his law. And Jesus here is dealing with high-handed sin. He's dealing with a repeated pattern of rejecting God's message from the prophets. You could go throughout the Old Testament. You could find the witness. There There was Uriah who preached in the days of King Jehoiakim. We find his story in Jeremiah 26 where it tells us that the king fetched Uriah, and struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. There was Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. He was a priest and a prophet of God. Same story for him. 2 Chronicles 24 says they conspired against him, and by the command of the king they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. And there were others. Jeremiah himself, who more than once came within an inch of his life, was, was beaten and tortured and thrown into a pit. There was evil king Manasseh of whom we read uh, that he shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Jesus is dealing here with high-handed sin. He's talking about outright rebellion. These are people who had received outrageous spiritual privilege. They were drowning in religious privilege. They were the people entrusted with the oracles of God. Of all the people on the face of the earth, God's prophet came to them. And over and over again, Jerusalem closed their ears through violence. And Jesus, in Luke 13, uses language that indicates a continuous action. As though this this is a spirit of rebellion that's still alive and well in his own day a spirit that will meet him and his ministry when he gets to Jerusalem. In fact, a spirit that will continue in Jerusalem after Jesus has died and been raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Men like Stephen, men like James, will lose their lives in Jerusalem because they dared to speak the truth of God. Jesus is dealing with high-handed sin. He's dealing with a pattern of rebellion. He's dealing with what we might call a societal rejection of God. We know, of course, that sin is a heart problem. It's a personal issue. It's, it's, it's something that begins with the individual, but it also tends to gather in clusters. Sin often reproduces in particular people in predictable ways. So in Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul agrees... With one of the, the pagan poets, that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Those are societal sins, a cluster that had taken hold in, in their culture, a collective expression of depravity. And every culture, by the way, develops its own society where some sins are winked at. And so they become almost acceptable. What are the societal sins? Of our American culture? Do you ever think about them? Greed, perhaps. Materialism. Our unbounded search for, for personal enjoyment and comfort. What about self satisfied pride? Perhaps our societal sins have to do with our love for autonomy. Michael Horton suggests that the American religious spirit runs parallel to the American political spirit and that both of those actually can be summed up in the slogan that was printed or stitched into the battle flag, a battle flag from the Revolutionary War. It was an 18th century flag from the 13 colonies and on it were emblazoned the words, we serve no sovereign here. That is, both politically and morally, we don't like somebody who tries to tell us what we can and cannot do. We don't want anybody who tells us who we can marry. We don't want anybody to tell us what we should read. We don't want anybody to tell us how we ought to worship if we choose to worship at all. We want our movies without ratings. We want our sex without consequences. We want our Internet without censorship. And anybody who tries to tell us otherwise, we we suspect that maybe they're just trying to spoil our fun. Now, if Michael Horton is on to something, I think he is. If Michael Horton is on to something, if that is at least an accurate summary of part of our societal rejection of God, then we are in almost the same boat as the people of Jerusalem, drowning in religious privilege. And yet when God spoke, they refused to listen. And when God's messengers showed up, they silenced them by any means necessary. And it happened to Uriah. It happened to Zechariah. It was about to happen to Jesus when he got to Jerusalem all over again. And so I say again, the question for us is, when Jesus responds to the sin of rejecting God's call to salvation, does he do it in a fit of anger or does he respond with tears of mourning? I think we know a thing or two about being angry at our society's rejection of God. We know what it is to get angry when we see politicians in Massachusetts again attempting to legalize abortion through all nine, week, all nine months of pregnancy, each trimester. And they're pushing the legislation all over again. It's the Roe Act. You can look it up. And it's coming down the pipeline, and we get angry about those things. I think as well we should. We know what it is to shake our heads and to be judgmental. When we see celebrities, we see so-called influencers putting out media that seems designed to take the hearts of children and to turn them away from God's design for life and godliness. And we know what it is to be angry when our ridiculously, religiously privileged society tramples on God's word and refuses his call to repentance, we know how to be angry about those things. But I think we know far less of the Christ-like compassion that mourns over salvation rejected. Hear it again. How often How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. It's a lament. It's undoubtedly a lament. Christ is grieved over the repeated refusal of his own people to come to him for salvation. So he channels this rich biblical metaphor. It shows up first in Deuteronomy. It shows up all throughout the prophets, all throughout the Psalms. This idea that God is the one who stretches his wings of salvation and mercy over his people. He gathers them together as a hen gathers her chicks Against the storm of his oncoming judgment because by the side of God and under his wings there is protection and there is safety. And every mother who has ever read this text knows exactly the maternal impulse that Jesus is invoking here. Mothers, what are the limits that you would put on protecting your children? How far would you go before you say, no, 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 they're on their own now. I I don't really care. I'm not going to intervene anymore. They're, They're in real danger, and I can do something, but I won't. How far would you go? Any natural mother would rather die herself than see her children harmed. And remember, in the verses that we read at the beginning, the words that Jesus has just spoken, he's about to go up to Jerusalem to do exactly that. He's about to spread his wings of salvation on the Mount of Calvary. He's going to offer his sinless life as a shelter for sinners. If only they will hide by faith beneath the cover of his wings. But they won't. And he knows that they won't. He's the sovereign Savior in the flesh and there is some question here as we look at this and we're puzzled and and we think about God's salvation and and man's initiative and man's responsibility and I think we can only come back to J.C. Ryle and say we ought not to be more systematic than the text that we're reading. But what we see for sure here, here is that Jesus knows how often, he knows how repeatedly the people of Israel have refused God's call to find shelter in him and it breaks his human heart. It breaks his heart to watch sinners reject his mercy. Brothers and sisters, you live in a society that rejects the privilege of hearing the word of God. You live surrounded by friends and by neighbors who want nothing more than to live their lives without God's kingship breathing down their necks. They don't want anybody to tell them, what they can and cannot do. They stop their ears, they harden their hearts so that it's easier to reject the call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And when you see that pattern of rejection in the world around you, does it make you angry? Does it make you cynical? Does it make you exasperated? Does it make you shake your head at those wicked people or does it break your heart like it broke your Savior's heart? that you mourn over their sin and over their rebellion. Christ's compassion should be our compassion. And his heart should be our heart. And our Savior mourned over salvation rejected. He also warned of judgment approaching. This is our second point. We see Jesus' compassion in the way that he, he warned of judgment approaching. That was also an element of his compassion. Jesus didn't buy into our post-postmodern idea that if you love someone, the best thing you can do is to live, let them live their own truth. Whatever the bumper stickers, whatever the t-shirts mean when they say that, I saw a little girl recently, her shirt said, Find your own sparkle. Okay. <laughs> it's a cute thing for a little girl's shirt, but behind that there is there's an idea, isn't there? There's a philosophy. Live your own truth. Find your own sparkle. Now, Jesus lived in the reality that there are lifestyles. There are sins. There are patterns of rejecting the will and the word of God that are dangerous and damning. And out of a genuine compassion for sinners, Jesus was unafraid to weep over sins and simultaneously to warn against them. Consider the warning that he gives in the beginning of verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken. It's just not an easy message that he's giving. And in saying these words, Jesus is essentially repeating that hard message of the other weeping prophet, Jeremiah. You may remember that Jeremiah prophesied to Judah, to the southern kingdom. In the days right on the precipice, leading up to the the fall to Babylon and the Babylonian exile, he spoke to people that in their time in their day and age, religiously, they were privileged, but they had become complacent. They were trusting not in the God of covenant and promises, but but in the outward signs, in the rituals, in the edifices of their religion. The temple especially was what they were trusting in, because the temple was, for them, God's rubber stamp of approval on all that they were doing. So long as the temple was standing, nothing bad could happen to Israel. That's the place that God had put his name forever. Isn't that what he had said? So long as the temple is standing, nothing can happen To Israel, So it didn't matter how many prophets appeared to the people. It didn't matter how many warnings came to them in God's name. The people filled their days with with idolatry. They filled their hands with violence. And then they crowded into the temple where those magnificent walls made them feel safe. And so Jeremiah, as you read that prophet, his refrain, his constant refrain is that the Lord is about to destroy the house that they trusted in in place of him. You see it most clearly in Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. The prophet says, Because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and because when I spoke to you persistently you did not listen, and when I called you you did not answer, therefore I will do to this house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, and I will cast out all your kinsmen as I did to the offspring of Ephraim see it again in Jeremiah 12, verse 7. God's word came and said, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. You can read the rest of the prophet for yourself, because over and over and over again, the same message shows up. And that is the message, by the way, that got Jeremiah within an inch of his life and thrown into a pit, that the Lord is going to come against the house that the people were trusting, and that that will be forsaken because the people refused to listen to the voice of the Lord when he called. And now Jesus has that same message. He's declaring in his own day that the history of Israel is about to repeat itself. So just as it happened in the days of Jeremiah, when the people trusted in, in religious ritual rather than in God, So it was happening all over again. Just as in Jeremiah's day when the prophets were silenced through bloodshed, so also the righteous one is about to show up in Jerusalem, and he too will be put to death and murdered because he testified about the world and the evil works that are done in it. Just as it happened in the days of Jeremiah when Babylon came against them and tore down the temple and took away the people, so it's about to happen again and the Romans are going to come, and they're going to tear apart the city stone by stone. And Jesus has the compassion to warn his hearers not to stop their ears to the call of God. He warns them that if they continue to refuse his ministry, they will face the judgment of God. And it's his, his compassion to warn them of judgment that's approaching. That's also, I think, why why Jesus pleads with the people in the last phrase of this passage. He says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, we have the problem of not having Jesus' tone of voice. And so what do you hear here? Is is Jesus cynical? Is he frustrated? Is he washing his hands of, of the whole endeavor, the whole city? Or is he urging them, calling them to walk in the only path that's going to avoid the judgment that's coming upon them for their sin? You know, some scholars look at, uh, at this passage. Jesus says, you won't see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some, some scholars look at this passage and they say, well, this is, this is a pretty clear uh, prophecy. Jesus is simply saying this is what it's going to be like when he comes into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And we know how it happened. He came up, and there were crowds, and there were loud hosannas, and there were palm branches, and they said, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing Psalm 118, and, and here comes Jesus, the King of Israel. But there are at least two problems with that interpretation, that it's simply about Palm Sunday. The first problem with that interpretation is that at least according to Matthew's timeline, when Jesus said these words, Palm Sunday had already happened. It's possible. Uh, that uh, that Jesus might have said this in, in multiple places, but these words, this whole passage, actually, this is one of the reasons we separated these two verses, they show up in a different context. They show up in Matthew chapter 23, two chapters and one day after the triumphal entry. The same passage. Jesus sometimes said the same words in different contexts. But Luke also sometimes takes Jesus teachings and he gathers them together according to theme and not necessarily according to chronology so maybe that's a problem you see maybe jesus prophecy is about something much bigger actually than palm sunday maybe it's about a day when he will return and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and they will know whether they want to or not that he's the one who comes in the name of the lord so that's that's the first problem with that interpretation The second problem is that even on Palm Sunday, the people of Jerusalem still didn't see Jesus. Not really. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Flip over a few pages. This is is Luke's account of that triumphal entry, that day when they said these words, when, when Jesus came in and Luke tells us in Luke chapter 19, down in verse 37, he tells us explicitly that as Jesus approached the city, it was... The whole multitude of his disciples who began to rejoice. And praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. It was his disciples. It was the disciples who shouted in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It was the disciples who saw him as he is. Not the people of Jerusalem. Certainly not the Pharisees. And for Matthew he adds in the priests and the scribes as well. Certainly not those in ruling positions and high power in Jerusalem because they didn't welcome him. In fact, they told Jesus, you ought to rebuke and silence your disciples. They didn't see him, did they? They would not receive Jesus as one sent by God for their good, and so they never really saw him. Keep reading in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They didn't see him. They never saw him. And they're not going to see him until they see him with eyes of faith, until they look at him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one who spreads the wings of salvation over us. This is the one with whom we are safe through whom we can be reconciled, they'll never see him until they come in faith. I keep reading, here comes Jeremiah all over again, isn't it? Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another on you, in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There are a lot of moving parts in, in what we've just seen. And we've we spent some time in Jeremiah. we spent some time in a different passage. And for a, for a small passage that's only two verses, we probably spent more time out of Luke 13 than we spent in it. But, but let me try and summarize what I think is happening here between these two chapters that we've just looked at. Between the end of chapter 13 and the end of chapter 19, there's a tension here. There's a tension between Jerusalem that kills the prophets and Jerusalem that... Uh, that does not know the day of her visitation. And between those two passages, in the tension between them, Jesus is giving a warning. He continues speaking to this hard-hearted people who are so comfortable with their autonomy, with their religious privilege, that they refuse to hear the voice of God even when he speaks a word of peace to their souls. And to those who continue to reject the call of the gospel, Jesus keeps on speaking. He has the compassion to mourn over their sinful rejection. He also has the compassion to warn them of the consequences of their sin. And so what we see, even if if Luke doesn't give us the tone of voice in Luke 13, what we see is Jesus pleading and urging and calling and warning them to receive him in the name of the Lord, to take their shelter by faith under his wings of salvation. You know, the reality is that God's judgment upon the city of Jerusalem that came in A.D. 70, God's judgment for rejecting the Savior is merely a precursor. Because all the temporal judgments, all those things that happen in time, well, they're just a reminder that there is an eternal judgment to be rendered on the day when Christ returns that means that maybe today this gospel warning is meant for you. Because maybe you've been listening but not really hearing. And maybe you've been seeing but not really perceiving. And Jesus is urging you, calling you all over again to come to him and find life. But this message is also for the church of God. It's for those of us who are tempted to give in to cynicism when we look at the world around us for those of us who are tempted to to exchange Christ-like compassion for the world's method of kindness, where we simply say nice things to nice people, and we share nice thoughts, and we never actually get to caring about anybody enough to warn them about the coming judgment for sin. Well, brothers and sisters, that's not how Jesus responded to sinners. Christ had compassion enough to mourn over rejected salvation, and to warn over approaching judgment. To those who even rejected the call of the gospel, Jesus kept speaking. The challenge for the church is that we would do the same, that we wouldn't give in to, to pessimism or passivity, but that his compassion would become our compassion, that the Lord would give us his heart and his voice in his boldness, to speak his word to the world. May he do that, and may he work that through each of us as he sends us into the world to give us compassion for those who are lost, and a word of his salvation. Let's pray together. O gracious Lord our God, we thank you for this word of salvation. We thank you for the gospel warnings which you have used to bring us to yourself. We pray that you would still make them effective in drawing and calling sinners out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Gracious Father, would you do a work among us to draw us closer to yourself and to make us your spokesmen, your spokeswomen in the world, in all of our neighborhoods and our families, in the places where you call us. May we have the same compassion of Christ continue speaking to those even who have rejected your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.